This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Brian. Hello, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about Wheeland, a novel, a.k.a. Uh, Wheeland or the Transformation of an American Tale, first published in 1798 by Charles Brockton Brown, or written by Charles Brockton Brown, and uh, his first novel. And uh, he's also apparently the first author who got paid for a living in the United States. Is that right? Paid for writing? Yeah, it's my understanding. And that's a pretty weird first uh, big novel for a paid author. <laughs> the United States is a weird country, but geez. Yeah. <laughs> a founding document is a strange book. Um, this is your idea, sort of, right, Evan? Yeah, that was my, I think I recommended it. Yeah. I was kind of reading it at the time. You read I'm it before, through. though, right? The works of Brown. I, yeah, I I looked at all three. Well, not he wrote more than three, but I looked at the three the Library of America collected in their one volume of his work. Brian, you so did was, your your uh, PhD, wasn't it, on Gothic literature? Have you read this before? Uh, are you guys having Are you guys having connectivity issues? I'm getting a little uh, um, delay in some people's comments. Uh, uh, it seems okay. All right, can you hear I me? I got now? a few before. I, it's been good now. All right. I'm, I'm not having issues, as far as I'm aware. All right. Let me know if I. I yeah, you're breaking up. Yeah, I did my dissertation on. Yeah. Uh, so you'd read this prior? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I did this, and I did Edgar Huntley. Which is another novel by Wieland, or the author of Wieland, or is that a, another That's author? That's even weirder in a way. I mean, yeah. yeah Huntley, you, say more about it. I, I just I just read it um, again, Edgar Huntley. Well, uh, I was very interested in uh, the doppelganger as a motif <laughs> in the Romantic era. Uh, and mostly I did work in the uh, British uh, novel as well as British poems, um, and then uh, I tried to work in the uh, Americans, but my dissertation committee wouldn't let me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I ended up uh, instead just uh, uh, teaching them um, uh, in grad school, or when I became a professor. Um, yeah, Edgar Huntley is you know if Wheeland is about the, if the gimmick is uh, ventriloquism, uh, the gimmick in uh, Edgar Huntley is uh, sleepwalking. Um, you get a couple of people who are very different characters, and uh, they have a struggle, and they both sleepwalk basically, which leads them to charges of murder and uh, Indian War. Huh. I don't want to say much more than that because it's a very strange book. It says that yeah. there, there was a book actually before Wheeland um, that was never finished. It says Skywalk or The Man Unknown to Himself, completed in March 1798, partially typeset, and then subsequently lost and never published. That's interesting. This guy is a. I'd never heard of him before. It's weird. Uh, I mean, I'm. I, I talked to a lot of Americanists about this. 
and um, he he goes he comes in and out of fashion or in and out of focus. Um, my my sense is that a lot of Americanists really prefer the uh, kind of uh, natty bumpo uh, manly nature stuff, and they find Brown just to be too freakishly bizarre. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's the long train of the of the dark theme in American lit, going up to Hawthorne and Poe and Melville and mm-hmm. Lovecraft, and these guys are never universally beloved. Um, at times, they're quite marginal. Uh, so that may be one reason why you haven't heard of it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I did look him up. He is in supernatural horror and literature, and uh, this novel gets prided place in in that. Um, I'll read that paragraph if I can find it. Um, Paula, did you want to say something there? I, I, I did. I mean, growing up, I thought the first real American novelist was James Fenimore Cooper. I had mm. never heard of Charles Brockton Brown till till Jesse said, well, let's do a podcast on him. I thought, who? <laughs> so, so, but, but, but again, again, that's like, the, I mean, I mean, Cooper and the last Mohicans, all that stuff. I mean, that's as, as you were, as you were saying, Brian, the whole manly nature, man versus nature strain of American muscular exceptionalism. Whereas Brockton Brown, as you point out, is much more a prefigure of Poe and Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. uh, it is, this book mm-hmm. feels like it was written for the primary audience of novels back then, which was probably women. Um, it's got a female protagonist. Yeah. It deals with her view on a, basically a horror story <laughs> we don't find that out for quite deep into the book but uh it's a horror story for sure um, yeah they're all th- all three of the novels of his that i looked at which was Whelan, edgar huntley and then uh arthur mervyn um all deal with violence against women wow in various ways um with with Whelan, of course you have the brother who is you know prepared well murdering a bunch of women and children uh, then you have in Edgar Huntley uh, several accounts of rape and and forced women into prostitution and stuff, some really bleak stuff. And in Edgar Huntley, it's it's more kind of the violence of the frontier, the Indian Wars. Um, but with the Cooper thing and the Natty Bumpo, the with I guess this gets to Edgar Huntley. The way the violence is portrayed in that book is it's so out of time in a way with. It's something you'd expect, like how contemporary historians look at frontier violence, you know, and the, the more brutal nature of genocide and kind of the westward con- conquest. I kept thinking it's, it's like, because you see that character just like wake up in the cave and he becomes like Rambo and <laughs> starts of slaughtering Indians wow. in this brutal way. There's none of the nobility that's there in Natty Bumpo at all or Cooper. I mean, you got the same level of violence. They're both, they're all violent, very violent novels. But yeah, the violence all, in here is pretty much off screen. Ability. So mm-hmm. it's, but the threats are, are real. Or at least prominently well, there's, there's one focused. Key, right. There, there, there's one key difference here, though. And I, I think this may be another reason why Brown was not universally loved, which is that this is profoundly a novel about religious violence. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we, Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, yep. and in in American culture, there's the, on the one hand, there's the uh, there are multiple established religions which people want to love uh, or respect, you know, from Puritans to Catholics and so on. 
Uh, but then there's also something you get in um, in the uh, in Cooper, which is the sense of nature as a, a place of awe and uh, a kind of um, a kind of worship. Uh, that nature is a great revivifying place, the place where you can find meaning, and that's why you connect to Native American uh, nature worship. Mm -hmm. um, but here in Brown, uh, nature is freakishly terrifying. I mean, in in this book. Uh, nature is where you get incinerated by some kind of freakish example of uh, <laughs> divine uh, pyrotechnics. And, I want to talk nature. about that for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But let me let me read this paragraph by uh, Lovecraft on uh, because it it also sums up the story for all those who have yet to read it. Um, I, I I will make note though that uh, on your podcast, Evan, uh, yeah, uh, American writers one hundred pages at a time. You say you recommend this book for everybody, which I thought was hilarious because it is um, it is dense. It is it's relatively short. It's seven, seven hours, and half, seven and a half hours, something like that. It's relatively short, but it's dense, super high level vocab. It's very dis, dis, um, distancing from the events. And the whole back half is basically explanation for the first half. Um, well, at least a lot of the back half is an explanation for how the events of the first half could possibly have happened and right. not everything solved. So it is a very strange recommendation. You know, I recommend this book for everybody, but, um, Lovecraft, uh, did like it. And I want to read this paragraph and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Um, uh, so this is from chapter three of supernatural horror and literature, which is, uh, early, uh, romanticism or, Early, the early gothic novel. It's the last paragraph in that. He says, Of Mrs. Radcliffe's countless imitators, the American novelist Charles Brockton Brown stands the closest in spirit and method. Like her, he injured his creations by natural explanations. <laughs> but also like mm. her, he had an uncanny atmospheric power which gives his horrors a frightful vitality as long as they remained unexplained. He differed from her in contemptuously discarding the external Gothic paraphernalia and properties and choosing modern American scenes for his mysteries. But this reputation, reputation did not extend to the Gothic spirit and type of incident. Brown's novels involve some memorably frightful scenes and excel even Mrs. Radcliffe's in describing the operations of the perturbed mind. Edgar Huntley starts with a sleepwalker digging a grave, but is later impaired by touches of God... Godwinian didacticism. Or <laughs> Ormond uh, involves a member of a sinister secret brotherhood. That and Arthur Mervyn both described the plague of the yellow fever, which the author had witnessed in Philadelphia and New York. But Brown's most famous book is Leland, or The Transformation, 1798, in which a Pennsylvania German, engulfed by a wave of religious fanaticism, hears voices and slays his wife and children as a sacrifice. His sister Clara, who tells the story, narrowly escapes. The scene laid at the woodland estate of Mittengen on the Schuylkill remote Schuylkill Schuylkill's remote Ooh. reaches. That's the a river in Pennsylvania. Is drawn by uh, drawn with extreme vividness and the terrors of Clara, beset by spectral tones, gathering fears, and the sound of strange footsteps in the lonely house, are all shaped with truly artistic force. In the end, a lame ventriloquial explanation is offered, but the atmosphere is genuine while it lasts. Carwin, the malign ventriloquist, is a typical villain of the Manfred or Montoni type. And uh, I agree with Lovecraft. I, I was like, 
okay, the next book's going to be about X-ray specs. You know, like, <laughs> this is not a ventriloquism, <laughs> seriously. Um, I much prefer the idea that it was God talking to the, the dad. I mean, that I, I really blows, talking. that blows the whole, like, it, like, if this is the founding novel of the American experience, that really blows my mind, you know, <laughs> that he basically reenacts uh, the binding of Isaac, except he goes through with it. And, uh, and, and this is based on a true story, which is even crazier. Yeah. Like yeah. Jesus Christ. Upstate, yeah. Upstate New York. Yeah. Apparently that this really happened. I, I mean, I think I had vaguely had heard about it in school because I remember like, I'm like, I remember a vague memory of uh, learning in school. Yeah, there was weird, weird murders in upstate New York in the 1780s. I thought, well, that's odd. And just uh, this part of, you know, the unit, you know, when you're, I don't know how it is for you, Jesse, but here in the United States, uh, you generally have a unit of your local history. And Mm. that was, that was basically New York City as an environs. So also, and that gets thrown, got thrown in with literature with, Irving and all that stuff, but yeah, it was like weird, weird murders up in up in uh up near uh Pittstown. It's like, huh? Yeah, there's there's murders everywhere, right? There's there's a a really famous um case that I eventually heard about through I think uh, Anthony Boucher story, um that it was it was basically there's this house on on the road where whatever I I think this has actually happened multiple times in U.S. history. There's a house on the road to the West, right? And people stop there and lodge and then they never come out, you know, and, uh, I'm trying to remember. That's almost, that's that's almost an urban legend at this point. But it like, there was a literal house where they, they just kill the house guests and then take their stuff and, and perhaps eat them. (laughs) But the, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the cannibalism aspect, but, yeah, but, yeah and, but, but the whole the whole religious fanaticism angle is, I think, probably why we learned about it because that's that's the unusual unusual thing in the in the real in the real murders and what and in this novel, yeah, he he goes crazy because of religious fanaticism. What did he? Was it God? Was it Carwin? I don't mm. know. The novel doesn't make it exactly clear because Carwin says himself, "Oh no, I didn't." drive him to do it he he declaims actually being the perpetrator of the voices that dr- that drive him mad but and well, I, I see it more clear I, I don't think carwin carwin he's a bit villainous certainly he's a trickster he's a bit of a seducer right he's got a thing going on with the maid or something right yeah i think there's clearly a genealogy here of, of religious madness I, yeah I <laughs> my father like son and Clara daughter too. too. I, I mean, Clara is not at all reliable throughout the narrative, you know, and I don't think she's meant to be. Uh, she she has her own moments of kind of I don't. She's not here. Well, she is hearing voices too, but yep. I think most of them are explained as as Carwin or something else. But but there are moments where you really see her as quite unhinged, and. You know, she was kind of going down the same path as her brother, it seems. Maybe not quite as deep. Um, and this is like a very Lovecraftian kind of theme here. There's actually really? a few. So you mentioned Lovecraft. In addition to this kind of inheriting the sins of the father, that's something Lovecraft uh, mm-hmm. explored. But the forbidden knowledge comes up a lot here. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So the father is studying these like ancient French Protestants or the Albigensians or something. Yeah. Yes. And and here's the writing. And I when I read this the first time, I just thought this sounds like Lovecraft, mm-hmm. like the books you shouldn't read. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, this volume had laid for years in a corner of his garret, half buried in dust and rubbish. He had marked it as it lay, had thrown it as occasions required from one spot to another, but he felt no inclinations to examine its contents or even to inquire what were the subjects of which it treated. One Sunday afternoon, being induced to retire for a few minutes to his garret, his eyes were attracted by a page of this book, which by some accident had been opened and placed full in, full in view. He was seated at the edge of his bed and was employed in repairing a rent in some part of his clothes. His eyes were not confined to the work, but occasionally wandered, lighted upon light at the page. The words sheik and you shall be fine were first offered to themselves. And from there, he gets drawn into this book, which seems to have some connection to with his madness. And then there's a scene later on where Clara is like looking for her like father's old writings to explain something about. I forget exactly what she's looking for in there. Some explanation of what's going on, all the weird stuff. And that's when she finds like Carwin in her closet. But there's like this, this, this idea of ancient knowledge that shouldn't be unopened. Yeah, well, don't, don't, that's why strong that's what the Catholics say. Don't, don't read the book. We'll interpret it for you because this stuff yeah. is too powerful, right? I mean, that, that's the original family sin. The Wheeland of the title is, is the father's, mm-hmm. the sin of the father. He, he says, I'm going to go teach the Indians um, how, to, how to be good Christians, right? To show up on the land. Mm-hmm. And instead of teaching the Indians, he becomes a, his own, he basically starts his own personal religion. Mm-hmm. And he has his own temple. And he's, he goes there twice a day without fail, at, 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 twice within the space of 24 hours. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's like um, yeah. the thing is, is uh, uh, sort of craziness and religion can be tied up together. People who are intensely religious, right, in that they're, you know, going and, I don't know, whipping themselves or whatever it is, um, you, you Normal people, people who just, you know, casually go to religious services or whatever, um, are frightened by this. I, I, and me as a person who doesn't go to religious services at all, I, I'm like, these guys are really strange. I, I don't, I don't know if I want to have them over to my house. This strangeness, it's, I think it's a, something that can be explored more deeply in, this kind of colonial America, early American history. And we can't ignore the American Revolution and all this either. No. We should probably get to that at some point. But but there's a history there's a little short history book by Bernard Balin called The Peopling of British North America. And it's it's just like a hundred pages. And it's actually supposed to be an introduction to a multi-volume book or multi-volume work he was working on. And I don't think he ever quite finished it. But uh, it's just so it's just introductory themes about like population migrations. Um, and, and the demography of early North America. But he's got a little chapter where he talks about America as a marchland of Europe or of Britain. Mm-hmm. He uses the word marchland. Like, like a march is that frontier zone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like a marquee, right? Yeah. Same idea of a march. Yeah, so, um, so America as a marchland then. And his evidence was pretty slight, but it, it's kind of compelling. It's just that partially it's, these people left Britain and they went to America and they're in this new environment, new, uh, this frontier, they got Indians there 
and they bring these slaves with them. Of course, it's different places. You know, you're going to have different geography and different migration patterns. But, you know, you have you had slavery in, in Europe, but it was much worse in America. Right. You have all this violence with the Indians. And you had like he actually talks about like religious nuts mm-hmm. that emerged in America that never could have popped up. In, in Europe, because they would have been smashed as heresies or whatever, but they were allowed to thrive in in, in the U.S. So I, I actually just checked out this book on new religious movements, and you look through the book, and like all these, all these, not all of them, but many new religious movements seem to pop up in North America. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know cults, if it's a frontier right? culture. Yeah, that, but so, yeah. I mean, you can you think about this in a few different ways. I mean, one is that the United States never had an established church. And uh, in the colonial period, um, although you kind of have a, a weak echo of the uh, Anglican Church, it's in practice not really there, um, because each state basically can do what, it's, what it wants. Um, and this becomes a long tradition in American culture. Um, I mean, right through the present, of uh, you know, we for every great enlightenment or great awakening of Christian belief, you then get a, a corresponding movement of alternative religious movements. Um, can I just put in a plug really quickly for the awesome sure. Netflix uh, documentary about the Rajneesh movement? What's it called? Wild Country. Oh, I, I it's fantastic. I mean, but that's, that's just typically strange. Um, but well, I want to come back to something you said, Evan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, sorry, one more point is that Europe had already gone through a couple of centuries of extraordinary religious violence. Um, yeah. Where, a constant generation of new religious movements. And so by the time you get to the uh, 1700s, Europeans are terrified of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yes. they really do not want this to happen, um, which is why you have, you know, not just, not theocracy so much as a kind of, um, like a public health warning against religions. Um, and, uh, but to go back to what you said about the forbidden knowledge, I think that's absolutely brilliant. That's a great collection connection to craft um especially since the text that the grandfather or the father reads is from the albigensians who believed in getting away from traditional church hierarchies and allowing clear individual interpretation of religion to some extent mm-hmm. um so that's what happens uh, no that's i, I think I, I, over and over again this book strikes me as not having a positive view of religion uh, <laughs> it's it's not like I mean, some British Gothic novels, you have a contrast between uh, evil Catholicism and benevolent British religion. There's none of that here. It's it's just religious frenzy, the end. Uh, there's, there are many other uh, touches That's you can true, see. Why. I wonder if... Oh, sorry. Go for it. Would these characters have been better off if, if they would have got a, a more traditional, I guess, religious education, you know? It's in chapter three. Our education had been modeled by no religious standard. We were left to the guidance of our own understandings and the casual impressions which society might make upon us. Mm. I think that's the danger even more than religion as such, but a a sort of unhinged uh, free thinking frontier religion. The danger, the dangers of religious chaos. Yeah. Well, that that is the argument of religious authorities. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's actually, if you go back to Augustine, that's actually a key element of Christianity. The idea that, uh, the view that, uh, humans are pretty miserable, terrible creatures and the best thing for them is a good theocracy. Um, <laughs> and, 
And so, I mean, in a sense, you could, if you were a good Puritan or a good Catholic or Episcopalian, you could use this book and say, see, everybody, got to have Sunday school, got to have mandatory belief or else this guy. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, he, he even talks about uh, it being a, in the introduction, right, or the advertisement. Um, it's it's a didactic work. It's designed to, uh, you know, it's it's almost like he's put a Comics Code Authority stamp on it you know, at the beginning saying, yes, I know people think these kinds of works are dangerous. However, mine's based on a true story. And everything is is going to be okay because it's all naturalistic, and um and if you don't like it, I won't write anymore. <laughs> he says, and if you do like it, and I don't get too much negative feedback, I will write some more. Well, there's a there's an interesting echo to this. Um, this is often uh, linked to uh, William Godwin's amazing novel Caleb Williams, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Caleb Williams is pre-didactic. It's, it's there to teach you that government is lousy and that anarchism is your best way forward. I mean, it's an extraordinary novel, and it may be, depending on how you reckon it, the first detective story, but it's also the first great anarchist work of fiction in, in English. Um, and, you know, the course in the novel is how uh, this government in multiple levels, from local to national, conspires to make evil stronger. Uh, basically, I, I don't want to spoil it, um, but it's it's pretty open. Um, and you know, here you have to wonder uh, to the extent that Brown is is drawing on Godwin, who is a contemporary. Um, you know, is what's the lesson here besides beware of ventriloquists? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, um, uh, it, it, I think it is. It, you know, like Clara is. She seems naive, but the 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 narrative shows that she isn't as naive as sometimes she seems to be. Um, and, and that's right at the beginning where sh- she's, she's sort of laying out uh, a history of her family, but it's very uh, soft and nice and everybody's cool. And then, oh, this handsome stranger or interesting stranger shows up. And because I, d- I didn't know anything about it, um, I- at one point I-, I thought that the brother... W- the transformation was from Carwin into the brother or the brother into Carwin. And because we're getting it told from, you know, past tense in letters, or I guess in one giant document for a bunch of friends that are finding what happened to your family, girl. (laughs) Um, We get, uh, we get eventually this, this massive explanation or set of explanations at the back end to what was going on. The uncle, you know, breaks it to her as gently as he can. And, and yet she seemed uh, to set up this, it's not utopian, but it's a very rustic, uh, friendly atmosphere that, that you see in Lovecraft's own family. Um, You know, he's got this grandfather who's a book collector and loves science and astronomy and all that stuff. And then, some stranger, the the actual Lovecraft um, father figure, shows up, marries the daughter, goes insane, dies. Then the mom dies, and 
the boys left in this house saying, oh, what what the hell's going on? And then traumatized, essentially, for the rest of his life by nightmares that he works into his stories. This is a, a nightmare story, not just because of the threat of of um, being murdered by her brother, but also, you know, her savior is also, uh, he says he's a rapist. <laughs> I was going to rape you, but... And then he explains, <laughs> well, I, I, I said I was going to rape you because it seemed best at the time. Yeah. What? You know, as one does, I mean, it's, it's a little white lie. You know. uh, so he, I, I'm just blown away by the fact that this is, it feels so, so gothic um, that the coincidence level is so high to get things to work out so that they're all somewhat naturalistically explained. But I'm pretty sure ventriloquism is not doesn't work exactly the way they say it does, <laughs> right? I mean, I I remember looking into ventriloquism when I was a kid because I I was reading those comics and they advertise you know throw your voice and then I don't know you could use it to get out of dangerous situations just as it's mentioned in this book, right? You you, you know you're walking down the street and uh, some I don't know tough guys want to mug you. You you can throw your voice to the garbage can uh, behind them in the street and saying, "Look out, he's coming!" <laughs> you know, let's, let's get these guys. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I know. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work like that. I mean, if you got a puppet next to you, you can stop moving your lips and and make make people think that you know. But that's, that's bullshit, right? I mean, this well, is such a bullshit book. No, I like it, it, but it's oh. totally bullshit. <laughs> Can I uh, can I put in a recommendation for a John Paget story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Secret of Ventriloquism. Okay. Have Tell you me about this. It. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an instruction manual on how to be a ventriloquist, mm-hmm. and it starts by explaining to you what you have to do, and it becomes something else. I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> so, ah, interesting. Okay. It was written for a. Uh, it was originally, I believe, written for a uh, Thomas Legati fan site. So what? It definitely had, uh, Legati what? vibe. Oh no. Yeah. Uh oh. I'm afraid. Puppets ready. Um, I I, I remembered the name. Um, there, there's a story by Anthony Boucher from I think for 1943. Uh, it's called They Bite, and th- there's these basically. I don't know, hillside monsters that, you know, if you're traveling through this particular remote region of the Southwest of the United States, um, these creatures will get you. And are they aliens or are they, um, you know, denizens of, of the caves up there or whatever? Uh, locals call them benders, which is a funny word for it. But the reason Boucher picked that name for his monsters is because there was this family of serial killers in Kansas called the Benders. And and this is this is like when I started when I started realizing oh, this is where this book is going. I'm like that father was insane, right? Yeah. Uh, um he wasn't just he just wasn't talked to he didn't just talk to God, right? Um and God was talking to him. And then this book is so full of coincidence. I'm like, wait a second. I don't think the daughter's daughter's reliable. Clara is 
not reliable. Yeah, she's not. She, she's she's hearing voices too, voices in her head, uh, saying, you know, oh, I'm gonna kill you. This is actually, you know, a sign of mental illness today, very clearly. And if you look at the original case that inspired Wieland, right? The 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 facts of of the murderer are so strikingly obviously mentally ill that you know we could almost diagnose it it's like you know he he kills his family he kills the animals on the farm because they're idols that he's worshiping it says his god and then he shows up at a neighbor's house naked yeah and that like that is not um that is not unheard of this is actually kind of the way things work out and and if people lose their their minds temporarily or permanently it's usually individually but mental illness uh, could run in a family not just because of um not just because of um you know genetics but also disease um Guy de Montpassant famously uh you know wrote a whole bunch of horror stories and obviously several of them are inspired by the disease he was suffering from he uh he's he's got one called who knows where he, he go, ends up in an uh, the main character ends up in an insane asylum and he he sees the furniture walking out of his own house the horla which uh has him um similarly haunted by some something within his house and his solution is to uh which is almost the solution that the the original uh real killer in upstate new york i guess it was um did which was you know, kill everybody in the house and then burn the house down. Uh, this is this is like a real phenomenon. So we got the brother who's definitely insane, right? The father who pretty clearly has probably been insane for a long time, and then Clara herself, who's explaining the story, she's hearing voices and she attributes it to this this mysterious stranger who, like. Uh, took on spanish characteristics is that that's the same guy right that's that's the yeah, same that's guy Arwen's yes. background yeah so like he took on this, like why did he do that what what point does that serve he's a mysterious stranger right but i, I i'm almost reminded of um you guys read carmilla uh by uh yeah. jay sheridan le Fanu. um there's this mysterious stranger who shows up she's um uh you 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 can take care of her she's very very nice but don't ask about her family <laughs> and then when uh they're hanging out together and she doesn't she doesn't want to go to a funeral or something um or out during the day or whatever it is um a another mysterious stranger shows up and wants to sell them charms uh for protection against vampires this is uh you know you know got this castle in the american forest it's got a Greek temple up on a ridge overlooking na- gorgeous nature. And then this mysterious stranger shows up and, and then things start to go haywire. I'm not sure any of this story is reliable. What, even when she's relating stuff about her family, I mean, because I want to talk about the father's death. Yeah, and he, and his spontaneous combustion, and <laughs> I, I, it just it just it just just such the weirdest weirdest possible way for someone to 
someone to go. It's like, <laughs> uh, maybe I should actually, re- actually yep, read please. this. All right. Okay. So, so bad, bad things have happened and fa- father isn't doing great. He saw a cloud pregnant with light in the temple and all that. So anyway, immediately subsequent to this disaster, my father seemed nearly in a state of insensibility. He was passive under every operation. He scarcely opened his eyes and was with difficulty prevailed upon to answer the questions that were put to him. By his imperfect account, there's a nice phrase there, mm-hmm. it appeared that while engaged in silent origins with thoughts full of confusion and anxiety, a faint gleam suddenly shot athwart the apartment. His fancy immediately pictured to himself a person bearing a lamp. It seemed to come from behind. He was in the act of turning to examine the visitant when his right arm received a blow from a heavy club. At the same instant, a very bright spark was seen to light upon his clothes. In a moment, the hole was reduced to ashes. This was the sum of the information which he chose to give. There was somewhat in his matter that indicated an imperfect tale. My uncle was inclined to believe that half the truth had been suppressed. What do we make of this? Well, one thing I... I, That chapter, that's chapter two, right? Where... Yeah, this is chapter chapter two, which is... Listen to how it ends. She asks this question at the end of the chapter. Is, is it a fresh proof that the divine ruler interferes in human affairs, meditates and ends, selects and commissions his agents and enforces by unequivocal sanction submission to his will? Or was it merely the irregular expansion of the fluid that imparts warmth to our hearts and our blood? And that's the end of the chapter. But this, this kind of religious versus the rational explanation, mm-hmm. this contrast runs throughout the novel, mm-hmm. actually. There's, there's Pyle, Lyle, yeah, the, the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who is presented as rational, right? Uh, as Scott. a rational foil to Wheeland, and the uncle too. When he shows up, he's kind of the he he's the brings rationality to the whole situation, kind of as the lawyer or, or whatever he is, or is he a doctor? You know, he's the professional. So this contrast, there's a lot of debates too when they're doing with the voices when they hear the voices, they're trying to explain it rationally, right? They're having those conversations mm-hmm. as a group. And even Carwin gets in on them, right? And he has these explanations of why these, where these voices are coming from. So I think there is a. It, it, I don't know. This is an interesting dialogue that goes throughout the whole book. I guess the original, the original uh, that's, that's, kills. That's Sorry, uh, Brian. Uh, the original kills in New York. Um, there was a club involved. Um, they thought he used a club. So it's like I, I thought there was a lightning. I thought he got struck by lightning. Right? And then mm-hmm. if, if he had been struck by lightning, that would actually um, be both natural and supernatural, which which is a kind of a nice way of going. And didn't they hear a sound up on the uh, on the temple? I thought they heard a sound of. Uh, yeah, the first suggestion was that a pistol was discharged and that the structure was on fire. So right. They did hear. Something. So like and blaze. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um the shrieks were no lo- longer heard, but a blazing light was clearly discernible between the columns of the temple. And I, I believe yeah. it has a roof, so I, I don't know how the mm-hmm. lightning would have got in there. But irregular steps hewn in the stone led to the summit. On three sides, the edifice touched the very verge of the cliff. On the fourth side, which might be regarded as the front, there was an area of, of small, some small extent to which the rude staircase conducted you. 
My uncle speedily gained the spot. His strength for a moment was exhausted by his haste. When he paused to rest himself, meanwhile, he bent on the most vigilant attention towards the object before him. And I'm just going to read this because I thought it was a very striking image. Uh, within the columns, he beheld what could he could no better describe than by saying that it resembled a cloud of impregnated a cloud impregnated with light. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a burning bush or something. Right? It had the brightness of flame, but was without its upward motion. So it also could have been like uh, what do they call that ball lightning or something, right? It did not occupy the whole area and rose but a few feet above the floor. No part of the building was on fire. Appearance was the this appearance was astonishing. He approached the temple. As he went forward, the light retired, and when he put his feet within the apartment, utterly vanished. The suddenness of the transition increased the darkness that succeeded in a tenfold degree. Fear and wonder rendered him powerless. An occurrence like this, in place assigned to devotion, was adapted to intimidate the stoutest heart. His wandering thoughts were recalled by the groans of one near him. His sight gradually recovered his power, and he was able to discern my father stretched on the floor. At that moment, my mother and servants arrived with a lantern and enabled my uncle to examine him more more closely this scene. My father, when he left the house, besides a loose upper vest and slippers, uh, wore his shirt and drawers. Now he was naked. His skin throughout the greater part of his body was scorched and bruised. His right arm exhibited marks of as of having been struck by some heavy body, his clothes had been removed, and it was not immediately perceived that they were reduced to ashes. His slippers and hair were untouched. So did he go up there and, like, cover himself with oil and light himself on fire? Did he get lightning bolt out of the sky? Uh, Was the mysterious stranger (laughs) doing those things to him, Uh, hitting him and, like... I don't know what's going on here, but it, I don't think that this is ever explained. And yet, um, I almost want to believe that it is supernatural because he's spending all this time, he builds the temple, he spends all this time up there, uh, worshiping twice a day, and he doesn't try and convince the rest of his family to join his religion, right? It's almost like he's, uh, you know, he was so devout to God. He, he got the right message, and God visited him, and instead of just seeing his hind parts, he saw, I don't know, a side, a side boob or whatever. <laughs> this, <Okay>. is, this <laughs> is so weird. This is so weird. Uh, and it, I, when I read this part of the book, I'm like, holy crap, this is going to be an amazing book. And I still really think it's very, very interesting, but the, the best part is the front, right? This is so cool. And I just love how old it is, 1798. Jesus, this feels like uh, much more. I mean, Poe is dealing with Radcliffe still, right? In 50 years later. So what's going on up front there? What do you guys think? Well, one thing, one thing, just just to note quickly is that um, when you articulate this uh, byplay between Mulder and Scully, basically. In the supernatural explanation or the natural explanation, mm-hmm. and this is crucial to the Gothic at this time. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you had uh, Radcliffe, who was giving you what uh, a later critic called the Gothic explique, where you explain scientifically what happened. You know, that's the uh, X Files Scully version, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you, have, um, you have Monk Lewis giving you, you know, just balls to the wall, crazy supernatural stuff with you know the devil as a character and that kind of thing. Um, 
and that yeah, that's that, that's Mulder, right? You know, mm-hmm. if it's supernatural, it's got to be. Uh, and that dynamic happens throughout the Gothic, and it occurs right to the present day. I mean, that's that's Scooby Doo, right? You mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, yeah. You have old, you have old Scooby Doo where everything is uh, turned old, out to be human nature, and then you have new Scooby Doo where there is ghosts and monsters. Yeah, there's there's only one Scooby Doo. <laughs> I I don't it, want. It I don't watch the new Scooby Doo, but I understand. Yeah, they they decide to make monsters real, which feels like a cheat to me. <laughs> yeah. So did did you guys make any? Did you have any thoughts about chapter the the final chapter, chapter twenty seven, particularly when they take this or Brown takes this old plot line mm-hmm. that was kind of a throwaway earlier in the book and decides to explain it all and finish that story. He does this in Arthur Mervyn too. Is one reason that book is so long is the whole second half. Again, it's just like this. He has to explain every single, uh, every coincidence, everything that happens, and that novel really drags as a consequence of of that. He doesn't explain the the spontaneous combustion very well, um, but maybe that's a it's a ruse in a way because he does seem to spend a lot of time trying to you know connect all the dots. He's trying. He, he's trying he to make sense of I think real phenomena, right? This is. This is uh, if this book is representative, like ventriloquism. It's interesting. Like, what is it? I've heard of it. Let's find out what it is. Uh, what would you use it for? And um, it's it, the story almost reminded me of the Invisible Man. Like, if if Carwin is the is, is that how you say his name? Carwin. Carwin. Yeah. Carwin. Yeah. Carwin. Um, is is he the way he describes his his temptation? It's the temptation of the Invisible Man or the Ring of Gaiji story where you've got this superpower, right? It's not a superpower like you're invulnerable like Superman, but rather you can see things that other people can't see, like X-ray vision, right? Um, And instead of being invisible, which he also is in this book, right? He sneaks in all over the place. Um, he, uh, He can... He has this temptation to intervene in people's affairs, uh, either for whim or to save them. But he's always rationalizing. And and what's so cool is because this is told from Clara's point of view and in reverse, right? All of all of the chapters up to chapter 27 are all told past tense uh, when she knows what happened. But she's trying to put us in her point of view at the time that it happened. She she's giving us her view of of the of what happened, but she's also unreliable within that. So when she she says this whole book is for the those people who want to know what happened to my family, <laughs> it's almost like this is her, you know, like um, I don't know, Stormy Daniels book. <laughs> she's trying to explain <laughs> to the public at large who are always hounding her. It's like, okay, I'm going to make everybody wants to know what happened to my brother and his, his family. I'm going to put it from my point of view and, and here it is. And then the, the last chapter is like, uh, I don't know, an essay in vanity fair three years later, um, where she says, well, I didn't kill myself. Um, and, uh, that carbon guy, not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. yeah. I, I would have thought that was so odd. The way, I mean, the explaining it is that she's trying to put the reader in her feelings at the time. That makes sense, but no one would really write this letter that way, right? Once you start out like, you know, this guy Carwin is really weird, and he 
freaked me out. But yeah, he's he's he turned out to be, you know, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, right. It's it's it it's written for our benefit this way. Yes. To, so we get nice and shocked. I, I don't know if it's very realistic. But also, yeah, I, I get As the I sense maybe that. she's she's putting it in the best light too. Like, um, you know. With especially with what Carwin says, he says, um, "Don't think too badly of her, uh, your maid." Uh, sure, I was uh, taking advantage of her sexually, um, but I was paying her. I think that's what basically what he's implying. Yeah, yeah and, that's not much better. And then I think about like what else is going on within that house that she seems so um, I don't know innocent of. Her father's basically a crazy man. The the other children. Yeah, just the children are never really. Yeah, we, we spend no time with them other than she wants to. She wants to nurse them when she finds out about the death, right? Um, she wants. Yeah, to, they're they're raised by the 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 the, the maids. Right? Yeah, almost sister-in-law, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this um this back and forth from you know Europe and we're, we're a upper class family and we live a wonderful life. We're, we play music and discuss philosophy. Um, uh, this could all be a bullshit story. Uh, her rationalizing. So I had no idea. Right. Um, but she could also be suffering from the episodes that were basically throughout that family. If you, if you have, what's, what's that venereal disease? I always forget the name of it. Um, the one that, syphilis? yeah, syphilis. syphilis, right. Uh, the one that, Eats your mind. Yeah, it eats. It, it just basically eats bits of you, your mind, uh, your brain, and then you know you suffer paranoia and it, it, it and get worse and better. Right. The the idea that par- paranoia can be increased. You can hear voices. Um, you can act very irrationally. Psychotic break. Right. All all this stuff. She could have had a psychotic break. Right. And then I mean. You guys know about what happened to Lovecraft's dad, right? Mm-hmm. He was. Uh, it was probably. Yeah, we, yeah, we did the. Yeah, we. Had... Yeah, and um, the sound, uh, like what he said when they took him out of the hotel he was staying in, was um, like a gang of men are raping my wife or something like that, and and like, well, Jesus, she's not even there. What what's going on? But they they took him away and they they hushed it up and and Lovecraft doesn't really even acknowledge it other than he he you know he he was he went to the hospital and same story his mom went to the hospital right it's it, yeah. this is almost a hushing hushing up of this horrible story of of a family murder there is no Clara in the original story right as far as I I know it doesn't mention anything you know like the true events so this is. I think Brockton Brown is like you he, he read about that. He read about ventriloquism and he's like can this be can this be rationalized without a modern Can I explain it? Yeah, modern yeah. disease theory uh, uh, and modern um psychology. I mean, I mean I mean he wrote this not too long after the original events. I'm thinking yeah, almost 10 years this is or so. Uh, yeah. like a weird early early in cold blood sort of effect where it's like I'm yeah. trying to rationalize how, how, how this guy could have killed his wife and children and gone through a religious mania. So invent, invent a narrator and, and it's so familiar. And, and, like there was a movie. Do you guys remember this movie of TV movie uh, starring Gary Cole, who was later on 
Babylon Crusade or whatever it was called, the Crusade TV show. Gary yeah, Cole. Was on, I remember um, Gary Cole. Yeah, so he was in uh, one of his early movies was a, a TV movie called Fatal Vision, which is about this uh, U.S. Army doctor named Jeffrey <laughs> McDonald, who was convicted of murdering his pregnant wife and two daughters. And he, he, in the explanation, like he he comes home and he finds his wife and children murdered. And he calls the police and says, oh, it was uh, a gang of hippies. Um, and they're like, a gang mm, of hippies. A gang of hippies. Okay. But the thing is, is um, he actually, you know, he has something to cite, which is, um, what's what's that uh, guy with a swastika on his forehead? Manson. Okay. Manson, right? He He's saying, oh, this is like just the Manson family sort of thing, right? The, those hippies. You know, it just blames whoever... Whoever's the, uh, you know, threat of the week. And back then, hippies were the threat of the week. And, you know, he's in the army. But uh, they, they they found him guilty. And as like, well, did he have a psychotic break? Uh, was he always a psychopath? And he just, like, uh, didn't want to, he wanted to start his life over again? We, we don't know. We're only guessing as to what's going on, right? And... Yeah, they're they're calling him a in the in the TV version he's a narcissistic sociopath. I don't think anybody in this story was that, unless unless it's Clara, in which case I I don't know what to trust. I don't think she murdered That's, anybody. That would be a real. But that yeah, like, that could be. I mean, it could explain it, but it seems unlikely. So what what's Clyell's experience in this in this family? That's my question. So you got these. Crazy siblings. Let's assume Clara's a bit off too. She's hearing voices, yo. Yeah, and Carwin. I mean, like in because Carwin shows up and he's a bit of he's a weirdo, and they just yeah. bring him into his circle right away. Yeah, they just find this drifter and say, "Hey, hang out with us and talk about philosophy." <laughs> drifter, and yeah. Um, yeah. He's uh, he's the mad monk, right? Uh, what's uh, Rasputin. Rasputin, yeah. He's the Rasputin of this mess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Except he doesn't die, and he's actually not bad in the end. I still. Don't I don't. Like I don't. I chapter. don't trust. I mean, I, I, fact, I don't like that last chapter. No, she. she, she I don't trust I, 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 the like, if if he says to her, uh, "Let's have a secret meeting," I'm like, "No way." <laughs> yeah, it's just like you have I, ten I, witnesses I, I, there, and you like, I don't know, transcribe and take photographs. Yeah, I got to that point in the narrative. Like, no, you idiot. Don't you even think of this. And she's thinking, oh, maybe I should go see it. Like, I here I am mentally screaming at the narrator. Don't do it. Well, she Nothing she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to do it. But, no, but, th- but, but then there's a point where she starts considering, oh, maybe I should. And yeah. and, and, and this this whole thing is trained and interrupted by fi- finding uh, by by her brother. By the incident with her brother, but it's like, oh my god, you've got to be out of your mind to even contemplate getting in a room alone with this lunatic. He's already admitted he wanted to rape you. What more do you need to get him out of your life? And he's hiding uh, in your closet. Here that's <laughs> he's hiding in your closet. <laughs> that's uh, that's this, I think this is when she. So that's that's story. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say this reminded me so much of a horror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah let's, let's split up and let me unload my gun and uh, take the batteries out of my flashlight. <laughs> yeah. 
But the scene where she, he says, I'm going to meet you in a house, because it's not like, let's meet out, like, I'm going to meet you in your house or something, right? And she's coming back, and the lights are on in the house. Yeah. And she goes in, and she grabs the knife, and Paul, the way you're saying it, like, don't do it. This is like a horror movie trope, Yeah, isn't it? it is a horror Yes, movie. it is. The it's woman so goes horror. in, and she should, everyone, the audience knows she shouldn't do it, but she does it anyways. Drawn to it. Drawn to the flame. And there's, uh, I, I remember in the first of your two podcasts on this book, you're talking about the um, the implications towards incest, and yeah. I I was thinking, I was thinking that Carwin was her brother for a minute, right? I was like, that is, they're they're That's the same twist. guy, right? And that because he this transformation of the title, like. Is he transformed into a monster, or is he transformed into a Spaniard, or is he transferred, <laughs> you know, trans like I thought, Kerwin or is it Kerwin or Carwin? I can't remember. Carwin. 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 Okay, so Carwin. I, I kept. I keep. I kept hearing it as Corwin, which is a different thing entirely. <laughs> yes. I want to say Kerwin too. I don't know why I was thinking Kerwin sometimes. I don't even know. This dude, this Spanish dude, who's not Spanish, he's English. A quasi-Spanish dude. Yeah. Crypto-Spanish dude. He's he's randomly Spanish. He's promised he was never going to leave that land, and now he shows up. And he was he he was a friend of who prior? Was well, it? he knows like a, he's got some connection to Playel because one of. I think like Pyle's friends is the one who sent the letter that says mm-hmm. this guy is a crook. Right. Which Carwin says, that's not about me at all. That's just some guy who doesn't like me back in Ireland or something. <laughs> yeah, but so I, I have to either. I have to blend in in Spain for no reason and become <laughs> Spanish and become a Catholic uh, for like no reason. But I'm clearly, I, I I'm think, clearly English. I, I think that's, that's still a kind of classic. That may just be the British Gothic uh, tradition. You've got to, and it, it predates the Gothic. It goes back to the 16th century, where you, uh, after uh, after uh, England tears off from the Catholic Church, then you get this uh, imagination of the Catholic South as uh, very very sexual, very uh, multiracial, very violent, very corrupt, very exciting. Um, and you know, it shows up everywhere. It sh- I mean, it shows up in the uh, Othello and it's uh, I mean every Radcliffe novel they always go to the south if it's southern France or Italy mm-hmm. or Spain um, so I, I for the American audience I don't think that has quite the same resonance but it, it feels like a kind of like a, a ritual uh, thing to do you know like uh, uh, just a classic geographical imagination for that but I also add that in if a weird half Spaniard half English or however it's like part-time Spanish, part-time English uh, guy just shows up in a place and, you know, that'd be America, right? The American frontier at this time. You had a, I guess it's mostly English and Africans moving in, but you do have a mixture of all these other folk sure. moving in, especially in those frontier areas, Germans and Scotch-Irish and yet Jews. The, the dem- demography of this period was quite um, complex. I agree. I agree. Um, and that's where you get, I mean, you know, the U.S., it's not the U.S., but when the novel takes place, it's still the colonial part. Um, but I, so I don't, I don't, that's why I said I don't think it would have quite the same pungency on an American audience. Um, I think, I think this is just an inherited move from, uh, from the British. 
I want to um I want to throw this in. I know it's not uh, strictly speaking related, but so reminds me of what's going on in this story. This is from um that movie Fatal Vision, yeah. aka the real story of Jeffrey McDonald and probably killing his wife and family. Um, m- m- here's what McDonald told the investigators who are investigating the murder. McDonald told the investigators that evening on February 16th he had fallen asleep on the living room couch. He told investigators that he did so because Kristen had been in bed with Colette and had wet his side of it. He then was later awakened by Colette and Kimberly's screams. As he rose from the couch to go to their aid, he was attacked by three male intruders, one black, two white. A fourth intruder, described as a white female with long blonde hair and wearing high-heeled boots and a white floppy hat partially covering her face, stood nearby with a lighted candle and chanted, Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. The three males <laughs> attacked him with a club and an ice pick. During the struggle, What's he claimed, <laughs> claimed that his pajama top was pulled over his head to his wrists, and he was, and he then used it to ward off thrusts from the ice pick. Eventually, he stated he was overcome by his assailants and was knocked unconscious in the living room and of the hallway leading to the bedrooms. It's like, this is not a true story. <laughs> As it is groovy, kill the pigs. Don't trust that guy. He's a liar, right? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Clara is perfectly, perfectly telling the truth. Maybe Kerwin is uh, trustworthy. Um, I don't believe anybody in this story. I mean, I, I think I believe the father. I, I believe the father, and they were saying his story is not the whole truth. Um, I think he was mentally ill. He dies shortly thereafter, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had a I had a question about this for Evan. Uh, yeah. Like, um, what's the uh, what's your read on the American Revolution angle on this? Well, I've mentioned that before. I I don't know. There's a lot. I I was been thinking a lot about what you said about the Caleb Williams and and of course he's uh, Godwin is so. Uh, hostile to these hierarchies and institutions. I don't know where Brown comes down on this, to be to be frank. At, at times, it does read like a, kind of a defense of American kind of revolutionary values against old Europe, against like the corruption right. of old Europe, especially in Chapter 5 when he gets this letter, or was it mm. no, Pyle figures it out, right, that you're heir, you're actually mm-hmm. a Duke of Saxony or something, right? Or you have some land, and then Pyle says you should go there you know, have a nice life there. And Whelan's response is, you know, I don't want to be one of those corrupt aristocrats. Right. And so, and th- this is all in chapter five. Where is it? Um, it was easy for my brother to repel these arguments, the arguments that he should go there. And the, the argument that Pyle gives is you can bring these, your American goodness and benevolence to this fallen old, old world essentially. And so you'll be the good king or whatever. And he says, it was easy for my brother to repel these arguments and to show that no spot on the globe enjoyed equal security and liberty to that which he present inhabited. That if the Saxons had nothing to fear from misgovernment, the external causes of havoc and alarm are numerous and manifest. The recent devastations committed by the Prussians furnished a specimen of these. The horrors of war would always impend over them till Germany was seized and divided by Austrian and Prussian tyrants. In event, which, which eventually which happened, strongly by the suspected way. <laughs> was a no greater difference. This is exactly what like Payne says 
Thomas Paine says about one of the problems of monarchy. Right. But on the other hand, he, he's not like an anarchist like our Godwin. Brown isn't anyways. He, he seems to think too much religious freedom is dangerous. Um, and not even like, I don't know if the whole Pleyel Clara issue in the middle, we haven't really talked about that yet either. What his views on marriage are and where he comes down on the, because there's that whole, there's like two chapters where Pleyel just rants to Clara over the suspected affair. And there's all kinds of gender politics in there, which I, I'm not even sure how to unpack yet. I, I really, and then I want to, I want the final I, scene though, with the, the court, the, the, this guy obviously has to be locked up right at the end. I, I, there's no criticism of the court proceedings at the end. <laughs> so I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a general critique of institutions here, but there, especially in that chapter five, I think there is this old world, new world dynamic being played out. But how do you feel about the last chapter then where we're basically Clara, Clara and uh, play wind up going back to Europe and living there. How that sort of, yeah, she's the whole... normal, right? She ends up having a normal life. Yeah. So yeah, that undercuts the whole American exceptionalism idea because she, she, she finds happiness in Europe and in the France. End. Yeah. And and Pleyel is the same story. He wants he he thinks, oh my God, there's nothing better than to be a lord in in Saxony, right? Oh, you should totally do this. Um, and this is actually really interesting because this is in later later Gothic stuff as well, right? This is um, the um, uh, the rats in the walls with mm. Lovecraft's uh, you know uh, character moving to England. Because his old estate is there, and then once he find, he finds, you know, oh, why did they move to the states in the first place? Ooh. What, what happened in that situation? You remember why they moved to the United States? Um, is the the uh, entire family and uh, the Delapore family um, was murdered by one person in the family who was then universally praised by the neighborhood. <laughs> 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 but the subsequent because other other communities nearby and you know the authorities outside of uh, his particular part of England were would not be cool with this um he fled to the United States where he became um a scion of uh, a long line of Delapours who were slaveholders and you know much more generous and from father to son each of these uh the secret of the family was passed down but only, you know, near death so that nobody, um, you know, had to live with the burden of this family, you know, knowledge. And then the the documentation of what had happened gets burned in a, in a, in a fire on the plantation. And so Delapore, who goes back to England to build his, his uh, back, build back up his family abbey. His family seat um, sort of starts the whole cycle again, the whole cycle of of horror, and and this is also seen in uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, right, where you've got yeah. a, a a family curse that turns out to be, I mean, that in a strange situation, that's actually a gothic book too. Now that I think about it. Because you've got this uh, basically wolf that or hound that 
haunts the family for a sin in the past, right? And it's everybody is trying to not believe that it's supernatural, but it's ghostly, right? It's a ghostly hound. Um, you've got these servants that are somewhat untrustworthy, and then we find out, oh, it was it was like a, uh, a member of the family, a mysterious stranger with a fake name and a fake past, who was causing all this thing, and 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 the Canadian who comes in to take over the Baskerville estate honorifically gets the title Sir John Baskerville. This is uh, a a constant image of of you know returning to Europe where the sins were ingrained in the family name, whereas in the in the United States you've got you've got sort of we can wipe the slates clean, start our a religion afresh. It's really interesting. When when Pliel when Pliel uh when Wieland rejects Pliel's plan to go back to uh basically be a lord in Saxony, I was like, oh, this guy, what little we've seen of him, which is basically nothing, he's really principled and he's sort of you know he's thoughtful. <laughs> Turns out he has plans of his own. Uh, or maybe it's not so much principled as, as rigidly thinking, like, unquestion, like, if I started getting voices in my head, like Clara does in this story, you know, like, um, you should do this, you should do that, let's kill her, let's, uh, let's kill her with a knife, no, let's strangle her to death, right? Or whatever it is. She, she doesn't say, I'm going crazy. I'm going insane. And neither does the brother. They're almost too rational, right? She's saying, she's saying, uh, oh, what could have caused this? Um, I, I, I'm mentally, I'm going mentally ill. I need to call a doctor. She says, what could have caused this? Somebody's in my closet. Uh, wow. So it's like the whole family suffers from this. Yeah. Well, like we were saying before, there's a history of mental illness in this family and, Clara is not immune from that, and as a result, we have to take everything she says that's happened with at least a grain of salt, if not uh, a teaspoon. And the, but the, to to make things afresh, she goes to Europe, right, where she quote unquote lives happily ever after. I guess it's not it doesn't actually say that. That's the impression I got. But yeah, she's but she's also living with this Pliel guy, right? Didn't he his wife die and then? They married. Yeah, they got married. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's what, like Pliel must have not caught on that Clara is is is, is crazy. But it's it, it, married her. Or, but there's a lot of incest I, I just sort of in there because like she's marrying her brother-in-law, right? Yeah. And well, that that that's not, that's not incest. I I I um, agree I, that I, it's I, not I, technically incest. However. It, I have I I have a pair of I have a pair of aunts who married a pair of brothers, so that's not that's not incest. And when those children marry each other, <laughs> well, the, well, that's an issue. That's a different thing entirely. But I I think there was a I think there were hints of incest between Clara and her brother. Yeah, they have a very strange relationship. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, there's that time she goes into the she goes into the closet. Right? Is this when she sees Carwin there and she thinks she's going to see her brother there? That's right. I think in her mind she's like she's expecting her brother there, which is and that's the transformation there, for me. Like I thought that's yeah. what it was, 
and obviously it's not just one tra- wow it could it, it could be multiple transformations but I, I was like oh i've turned this guy into an, another guy so that it's okay and like that's weird man yeah well i i, I still I, I back to this american revolution thing i think you have a big tension in this novel is kind of emotion and passion and kind of the wildness of thought versus rationality Right. That tension is is always established here. Right. And I I think even though this is set before the American Revolution, I think Brown is thinking about that. And, you know, you have a movement that's driven in part by the Enlightenment. And you can look at pain, of course, and you can look at, you know, those various influences of the Enlightenment thought, Locke and all that. Right. But you always have this other side to America that's really weird, very violent with the Indians and slavery and that kind of what I was talking about before with uh, that March land idea. And I think Brown has to side with reason here. He's, he, it's flawed, obviously, um, at various times. But that's where you have to kind of hold on to. Because the other thing is is really dangerous. Religion? <laughs> all the, like all the – everything that's bizarre, whether it's Carwin and his kind of machinations and his old oddity – or, you know, religion seems to lead to some kind of mental illness. I, I think he really wants to insist on the necessity of rationality. That's why the uncle shows up at the end as kind of the one who's going to straighten everything out. And there's it's a, potentially until, I guess, well, Whelan gets out right of jail for that, that, that climax. He has to get out of jail, right? I, I, I he just wanna, escaped. I wanna... Yeah. Never mind. I, I want to ask about this. This is in the last chapter as well, because it's it's pretty surprising. Um, so this is about four or five paragraphs for, before the end. A defiance was given and received, and the banks of a rivulet about a city from this about a league from the city was selected as the scene of this contest. So this is a duel, I guess. My uncle, having exerted himself in vain to prevent an hostile meeting, consented to attend them as a surgeon. Next morning, at sunrise, was the time chosen. I returned early in the evening to my lodgings, preliminaries being settled between the combatants. Stuart had consented to spend this evening with us and did not retire till late. On his way to his hotel, he was exposed to no molestation, but just as he stepped within the portico, a swarthy and malignant figure started from behind a column and plunged a stiletto into his body. What the hell's going on here? Who is this guy? This is uh, the 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 Luisa story. This is the second half of Luisa's story. Like right. we, we get that Maxwell or no, not Maxwell. It's Stewart, right? Mm-hmm. Luisa Stewart and the the long lost mother, or whatever mm-hmm. it was, right? This is like just a weird side quest in this story that he felt the need to fully explain at the end of all places. And then he says, <laughs> "I leave you to moralize on this tale." <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of virtue shit of um, mm-hmm. the last chapter of Robinson Crusoe, where uh, Crusoe goes hunting in Spain, and it has nothing to do with the rest of the book at all. <laughs> I don't even remember that. Wow. Yeah, there's a theory that uh, says that there was actually a problem with uh, pagination that uh, uh, <laughs> had, he, had, like, uh, he had chunks of paper to write on and kind of ran out and decided to like quickly add this to complete it. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, really, it feels it's a weird coda for the book. Um, but it is explained. 
at the, in that last chapter, all efforts would have been ineffectual to subvert the happiness or shorten the existence of the stewards if their own frailty had not been seconded their had not seconded their efforts. If the lady had crushed her disastrous passion in the butt, had driven the seducer from her presence, when the tendency of the artifices was seen, if Stuart had not admitted the spirit of absurd revenge, we should not had to deplore this catastrophe. If Whelan had framed juster notions of moral duty and of the divine art attributes, or if he had been gifted with ordinary equanimity and foresight, the double-tongued deceiver would have been baffled and repelled. The, the double-tongued end. deceiver. Who is that? <laughs> well, voices in his head, right? Oh, yes, but then we've also or got Car- this. No, it's, yes. it's... Yeah, Carwin's good by this If point. these characters... But, but what's interesting about the conclusion is it, it doesn't say... Um, if only they'd gone to church, if only they had uh, adhered more closely to religious teachings. It's a little, it's a little more enlightenment than that. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's framed just your no- notions of moral duty, I mean, that's a kind of classic, you got to think this problem through and you'll mm-hmm. come up with the best. I mean, it's almost a Kantian answer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, and, and previously she crushed her disastrous passion in the bud. Uh, the, the term, I mean, this is an 18th century, uh, uh, chestnut is what to do with the passions. You know, the idea of, of the human mind as a, a pretty good machine until the passions wreck the place. Mm. Um, so how do you how do you con- how do you consider that? How do you frame it? Uh, and that's a, that's a real classic uh, 18th century uh, thing to discuss and, and go over. Um, but you know, like if their own frailty had not seconded these efforts, I mean, it's like it's their fault. I mean, they're uh, you know, there's no if only they had adhered to the one true God. Mm. Well, well, maybe the one true God is reason, right? <laughs> um, but, yeah. But you don't, you don't quite get that. Um, it's, it's reasonable, but not, not fully. I mean, this isn't uh, Robespierre trying to uh, set up the goddess of reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, happened two years before this book. I want to uh, know what that temple was for though, because it, it's so mysterious. I'm, I want to go like up there. I want to be like Kerwin, uh, you know, listening to him talk to his God. And like what? Like to me, it was it was almost the Dunwich horror, right? You've got this family, <laughs> sort of in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. They got a temple up on the hill, and you know, the daughter and the brother, and the, maybe it's a bit of incest going on there. And then, um. I, I really, um, if you guys have read the Providence adaptation of Lovecraft, uh, yes, Alan Moore, yes, you, right? You, you get you turn me on to that. So yeah. interesting, like what he does with like what's going on with this whole, like, what who is he talking to up on that hill? Is it the God of the Bible? And if it isn't, who the hell is it? Is he talking to him? Uh, I mean, it it really is the Binding of Isaac, right? It, it goes right back to that, except. It, there was no God saying, no, no, nah, it was just a test. <laughs> it's instead, it's go for it, bud. These are your idols. Get rid of them. Well, that, I think that's a great comparison. And uh, it makes me think of the uh, Dan Simmons novel of um, Hyperion, uh, um, right. which is all about the binding of Isaac and how a humane society has to go beyond that. But what, what Brown is depicting is something different. It's almost, I mean, it's almost an atheist vision of, what happens when there is no God who makes that kind of pull, mm. that kind of choice? Instead, what happens when someone just has that vision and there's nothing to stop it? Mm-hmm. 
it is it is a, a horror book because it makes you think, well, you know, maybe if I have a little faith, I'll go this way. Right? <laughs> it's, wow. You don't want to go that way. But no. uh, a very interesting first first American I mean, novel. When I first read this, I was so surprised. Uh, yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's definitely one take on America. Um, and when I when I describe this to my students, they're always, oh yeah, this is American culture 101, dude. <laughs> you know, we we've got divine visions, family massacres. I mean, yeah, this is it. This is the stuff. But. Um, but I have to admit, the uh, spontaneous combustion always always gives me a grin. I mean, that that's just a. Complete... <laughs> Your wife, you were playing the audiobook for your wife, right? No, I, I was reading it out loud to her. Oh, right. And, and we had some, we had a few of those uh, horror movie scenes, but uh, you know, when uh, our heroine agrees to meet Carwin after uh, when he get when she gets the note, she's like, "Don't do it." Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> classic you know don't go down the basement yeah you know. um, then you picked I, up your axe and you went out in the woods and hewed some trees down to make your temple right i i uh the manly thing i did the just thing <laughs> oh no <laughs> i'm worried now uh, the um the there's one thing that was missing for me in this, and it, it may just be um, because this is early days of the American Gothic. But uh, usually speaking, in Gothic literature, the uh, the basement is crucial to the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the basement mm-hmm. is where you is where you keep the monsters, uh, and uh, that shows up in just about every horror movie of the past forty years. And it's it's a pretty commonplace thing in in most Gothic stories. I was disappointed that most of the horror here takes place upstairs. Yeah, uh, it's not the attic though either. It's the closet, uh, right? Exactly, exactly. And and it's and when when you hear closet too, this is that time where you're yeah. not sure literally closet or if it's actually that private anteroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is- I, I mean, cons- considering the time period, I mean, basements you'd have to dig into dirt and rock, whereas it's much easier to add another room than to build an actual basement in this time period. So. Right. Yeah, I was yeah. asking the same question. When when did basements become um, popular? Of course, in this part, there was basements could have existed, but I don't know if they were being used in the in the 18th century. I don't know the South. I do know that in the Northeast, a cellar hole, uh, and you can find ruins of them and remains of them uh, in rural areas, uh, and so that's often a kind of combination of um, uh, a sub foundation or a storage place um, okay yeah like for storing potatoes or something right exactly cheese um, when you want to turn milk into cheese I mean there's one hint of this at one point I was very, very excited when uh, Carwin says I lurked through the day in the neighborhood of Medigan I approached your habitation at the appointed hour I entered in silence by a trap door which led to the cellar I was like ah oh, yes this is it um, this informed had been bolted in the inside, but Judith had an early period of intercourse, removed this impediment. I ascended to the first floor. Yeah, that was it. That was there. Like a little detour, you know, like a storm cellar, maybe. I got to say, I, I just, I enjoy this book. It is so strange. It is uh, so weird. And in so, in many ways, it's so foundational. Mm-hmm. 
It feels it feels very very it's uh, it's it's pretty much the opposite of Fenimore Cooper. It feels like uh, Lovecraft and Poe and Dick, not um, mainstream fiction. And uh, and this is where I think we get the connection of science fiction fantasy to to a earlier literature, Gothic literature. Well, why is so much early American literature? Kind of weird that way. I mean, we talk about Cooper a lot, but is mm-hmm. is he the norm? I mean, you have uh, uh, what's his name, Washington. He's writing weird stuff. Faulkner. Yeah, yeah. Those are com- those are comedic though, and it doesn't feel yeah. like it's you know like it's super enjoyable and really, really. Um, I mean, it's full of the fantastic, but it's rationalized, but it's it's co- comedic, so it doesn't feel like it's taking itself seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I just finished reading, rereading Pierre by, by Herman Melville. Oh, that novel has the, the, the kind of the idyllic countryside, the kind of <laughs> old world, new world conflicts. It's got the incest stuff in it. It's, it's a bizarre novel too. Not quite as weird as this one, but. No, Pierre, Pierre. Weird in different ways. What, what's the subtitle again? The, the Ambiguities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Pierre is great. Remember that part where they're driving to New York and they look down out the window at the road? Like, why is it so bumpy here? Oh, it's because all the heads were driving over. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, even from Melville. I don't know what, where this novel came from. I I think the people who said that like, Melville's gone nuts, they may have been onto yeah. something. I don't know. Like, the first half <laughs> well, of the I, novel, for me, the, it's, it's nothing happens. It's just overblown writing for 200 pages. And then the second half, you have like this we- like there's a whole section where these weird artists are living in this church that's been refurbished into apartments, and they're all bizarre. It's I don't know where this novel came from actually. Oh, my my experience is when it's, it's, so, it's something well, like part that. Of it, you know, is, is his. Sorry, mm-hmm. go for it. It's his it's his frustration not being able to get career as a writer as part of yeah. it. Yeah. I I also find like when there's something really weird like that generally the reason i find out later is he's speaking to something everybody knew about then right it's some allusion to some current events or some sort of um like it's it's like why is why do you read about um in poe why is he always 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 obsessing about premature burial right why is that such a thing it's it's just it was a thing then. That was like, you know how people talk about terrorism today or whatever, you know, like there's just some things people or fake news. There's just something in the in the atmosphere that everybody's talking about that will be forgotten in 50 years and it'll be preserved like the bones of a dinosaur in the novel but without the flesh of of the Well, that's what um his first that's what historic criticism tries to do. Tries to uh, recover that moment, right? And when I was when I was writing about uh, Edgar Huntley, um, my idea was that it was a kind of gothic dream of factionalism, uh, which was a huge, huge concern in the early Republic, trying to figure out how to handle faction. Um, yeah, it was right that it was that led to the Civil War. Um, but uh, there's just one one more presence in this novel. Or looking ahead, I should say, is this? This really reminds me of Hawthorne, of uh, mm. House of the Seven Gables. Yeah, cool. uh, yeah. 
I mean, there's there's that sense. House of Seven Gables, the ideal community that gets you know kind of trashed, um, but also that that sense of, of nature being a terrifying place, mm-hmm. which shows just how bizarre and awful humans are. Um, you know, there's a real kind of collapse into uh, suspicion and gloom that I, I that often strikes me in Hawthorne. I mean, not 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 in uh, 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 you know Scarlet Letter, but in particularly in the stories, uh, you know, like Goodman Brown, for example. Yeah. Or the minister's black veil. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why is he wearing that? Oh, there's a reason. You heard a Hawthorne story, man. Get on <laughs> <That's> it. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go out in the woods and talk to the devil. What? Okay. <laughs> but or, the, the, or, there is a there is the there seems to be connection to re- religion there that you don't get in in this. I think that. Brockton Brown seems very disconnected from religion, but surrounded by people who are connected. That's that's the sense that I get. Whereas I I think Hawthorne seems to be he's he's swimming with the with the church team, but he's also a critic of it. I don't. I, anybody well, know friends, about Brockton Brown's religion? We're, uh... We're getting uh, freezing rain here, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose power, so I need to get going. Okay. Oh. I'll just go off with my axes and take care of some problems. Hew <laughs> down the problems. All right. Well, I'm looking at this chronology at the back of the Library of America volume I have. Mm-hmm. 1772 to 81, regularly goes to Quaker meetings with family and spends much time uh-huh. reading books from the library. Quakers. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so so Quakers, uh, they're the ones that, you know, everybody can take their turn as the minister, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get the, the the one guy who's talking to himself and getting messages from God. He's running the show for a while. And he said, okay, <laughs> let's let's not go to that meeting. Let's go to another set of friends over here. Um, Hence prestigious Friends Latin School where he studies Greek, Latin, English, mathematics and belongs to the Philosophical Society. Definitely, he, he was influenced by Godwin because in 1785 he planned to write a work quote equal in extent to William Godwin's Caleb Williams. Mm. Interesting figure, and he, I think he's very much of the Enlightenment. Yeah, he didn't live very long either. I think he died in his 40s. Uh, 1771 to 1810. Yeah, 39. Very very young man. Interesting. Oh, yeah. They call him a biloquist. He can speak two different voices at the same time. (laughs) I mean, this is a kind of a... You remember when you found out when you were a kid that uh, all the voices on the Warner Brothers cartoons were one guy, Mel Blanc? Yeah. And he's having the whole conversation back and forth, doing all the dialogue and the sound effects, practically. Um, That part's believable. What's not believable is that, uh, you know, you can make your voice come out of a closet. If you have a string attached to the door handle or something, <laughs> maybe, maybe, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> sounds bullshit to me. But I wonder if it's the same with Edgar Huntley, if sleepwalking works actually the way it's described there. Because they have people like digging graves and stuff. And, you know, I you hear stories like this. Mm-hmm. When we were kids, we heard stories about 
throwing your voice and sleepwalking I, and even other, you know more supernatural stuff. People who can like astral project and everything. You know, yeah. we kind of believe this stuff. Well, but, then know, we got the internet. In the 18th right? century, I just think it's more likely that there's less, I guess, evidence or clarity to to debunk these things. Well, that, that's that's whole Edgar Allan Poe's whole half of what he does is he takes these phenomenons, right? And then he says, oh, there's a totally real case. Here, let me tell you about the facts in the case of M. Valdemar. <laughs> it's like, well, well, it's, wait, it's is like this a, a true story? <laughs> no. Well, it's like Lovecraft's uh, books, you know, half of which are real and half of which are made up. <laughs> but, but the difference is that you get Poe who goes after people for hoaxing, right? Yes, and he's the biggest hoaxer of them all. Can I... I, can I just put in uh, one recommendation for a similar related uh, story? Has, has anybody here watched the Channel Zero stories on the Sci-Fi Channel? I I started watching the first season, but I never finished it. It's uh, the tooth teeth one, right? It's really cool, creepy. I I, I recommend these. We watched the first three seasons. Uh, each season is a single story, uh, and each season is based on a creepy pasta story. Um, and often very, very loosely based. The The first season is about uh, a story called uh, uh, Candle Cove, mm-hmm. which is a mythical TV show. And it's it's the weakest one. It's pretty good. Oh, really? Uh, the Tooth Monster is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I love the TV show, too, the way they, they, they have oh, this ghostly oh, yeah. image. That totally reminds me of childhood and trying yeah. to tune into the distant channels. And, and there's these weird shows that nobody's ever heard of, and then you try and tell people, and they don't believe you that it exists. And then you start to question your own beliefs. Wow. I, I think and then you does. find it later on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. What's the show called? It's called Channel Zero, and each each season has a title. Um, and oh, uh, it was on the site, Fight Channel, and it's now available on Amazon. Um, but or, the, uh, the second season... Well, the, they, they really figure out how to do it right. Uh, the second season is about a uh, – uh, it's about grief, uh, and it has to do with a, uh, a haunted house that is mobile. It just appears at, for a week at a place, and if you go through the haunted house, it's really, really bad. Um, and that's that second season is almost perfect. It's just um, – it's very uncanny, very surreal, filled with dread, um, and it really powers through. Uh, the third season was just completely bonkers. It's uh, it's about a rundown Rust Belt city, which has is being preyed on by a semi supernatural family. Um, I, I'm thinking of all of these in part because we recently watched them, but also because they're all based on folklore, they're, uh, modern folklore, creepy pasta. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. that one story of this, and so that reminds me of of this strain of American culture where you start off with a local legend, a mm-hmm. bit of folklore, and you build on it. So you can imagine, you know, Brown thinking ventriloquism. That's so weird. I, I wonder how this could go. Or sleepwalking. What mm-hmm. could you do? sleepwalking? Maybe you could dig a grave. Um, if you get a chance, I, I recommend this. I, I got to run, friends. This has been a lot of fun. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yep, you. Thanks, Brian. Bye, thank Brian. Bye, bye. Yeah, I never saw this show. I looked. I just looked it up, but I, I did read the the creepy pasta of the Candle Cove one. I, I found it pretty impressive. It was slow moving, so I uh, I lost track of it the first season. But I, I I don't know if it's the third season, but there's one with Rutger Hauer I think in it, and it's it's I don't know meat, very meaty. 
I don't know. It sounds scary. <laughs> These are the kinds of shows I don't want to watch late at night just in case they infect my dreams and make me have horrible nightmares. I have to really be control- careful what I can, you know, witness before I go to uh, sleep because it, it will show up in my dreams generally. Well, you're lucky. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.